With Capella University's FlexPath learning format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Caesars Sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with Caesars Rewards. That means win or lose, every bet brings you closer to the types of perks only Caesars can offer. Like hotel stays at over 50 iconic destinations, bonus bets, daily profit boosts, tickets to the game, dining, and so much more. Whether you're a new or existing customer, Caesars Sportsbook is always rewarding. Must be 21. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Caesars Sportsbook. Don't just spectate, participate. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Stansberry Radio Network. Uh, Tim Larkin, welcome to the James Altucher Show. I'm so glad you could come on the show. And um, Tim, I bet a lot of people don't know your name offhand so I'm just going to give a brief intro, but we could fill it out and, and talk more about it throughout the, the interview. But you wrote this great book, How to Survive the Most Critical Five Seconds of Your Life, which is a great title. Um, then right. you wrote Survive the Unthinkable, <clears throat> A Total Guide to Women's Self-Protection, which somehow you got Tony Robbins to write the intro for, and we'll, we'll talk about that. But what I want to know first is you were going to go teach – self-defense in the United Kingdom. I guess this was in 2012 and they banned you from the United Kingdom. They didn't want you to enter the country. What happened? Were you going to like invade the country? This is like a revolutionary war sort of thing. Yeah, it, it that it, it's funny. It's, it's, there's a, there's backstory to it. I, I'll give you the whole idea of, of how it happened. Um, I've been going to the UK for 20 years. I went to the University of London when I was in, in college. Uh, as a military officer, I went there and trained with their special operations groups. As a military contractor, I trained uh, their law enforcement and their uh, their military. And since uh, 9/11, I had been training civilian seminars there up until you know up until that time. So you're and, you're practically like a British citizen. You've been there so yeah. much. <laughs> I have I have a really long history, and I have, and again, I never had anything even close to a parking ticket. You know, all the whole time I was there. Um, in two thousand, I believe it was like two thousand four, two thousand five. I was on a BBC roundtable, and uh, we were talking about knife crime in the UK. And there was a uh, there was an MP there, Rosie Parks. So we had like a former chief of the Metropolitan Police, you know, Scotland Yard. I had a rabbi. I had uh, the, the host himself. Why was a rabbi uh, there? You know, that's just it. it, it everybody's talking about it. I was supposed to be brought on as a crazy American. You know, like, I'm coming over here telling them, you know, basically, if you soundbite me, it's easy to make me look like, you know, kill them all, let God sort them, sort them out type thing. And uh, I love that, you know, because it gives me the opportunity to actually, you know, talk about the subject. And essentially, by the end of the, the, the uh, roundtable, everybody agreed that I had a very sober approach and that there were some real problems with the current laws in, um, in uh, British, uh, you know, in British self-defense laws, you know, UK self-defense laws. And the problem was the MP that was on there was in the district that I was uh, doing my training and she had high knife crime and she didn't like that. In the green room, 
there was another MP sitting there. Didn't think much of it. Said hi. She was very pleasant as she left. And I didn't get to talk to the other MP as they left. So I, I didn't realize that <laughs> it, it didn't leave a very good taste in her mouth. Um, basically, that I exposed that, you know, hey, there's, there's knife crime there. These are real issues. Here's from your people. This is what they're saying. Um, and, you know, we want to have a real discussion about it. So you fast forward to uh, 2010. In August 2010, I get called all the time by the UK media and international media. I, I, I do a lot of traveling. And uh, they called me right after the riots in August. And I was interviewed by the BBC, the Times, the Guardian, all, you know, very legit, you know, publications over there because I have a pretty good history with the, with the media. And basically, I just, uh, they said, hey, you know, what, what, what's your take on this? And I said, basically, hey, citizens are facing grievous bodily harm. Um, here's the situation. The Metropolitan Police have said they can't be first responders anymore. And yet people are hesitating to take action because they're afraid of their own prosecution. Um, just the way the is, laws are written that, over is there. Is that true? Like if – let's say someone attacks me with a knife. I take the knife away from them, stab them and kill them. It, would I get prosecuted for murder? <laughs> James, I'm, uh, yeah, I'll go even further on that. There's a reality star over there and uh, she uh, she is a single mom. She has her infant upstairs. Her neighborhood had had a, a bunch of, uh, of crime, a bunch of house break-ins. And uh, she's wa literally washing her dishes, looking in her backyard one night, and a couple of young guys jump her, her fence. They're coming towards her door. She knows that, you know, the place has been broken in. Other neighbors have uh, been broken in. She sits there, and she's trying to call the police, and they're still approaching her, her back door. And they can see her in the, uh, in the window. So she grabs a butcher's knife from her, you know, kitchen, and she just shows it to them in the, um, you know, through the window. And they look at her and they just leave. You know, they just they, they leave at that point and the police come. She's explaining what they did, where they jumped over the whole time. And the police said, oh, OK, great. And, and they said, well, what did you do? And she said, well, I was so scared. She said, I just grabbed my butcher's knife and I showed it to him. And they left. And they said, you did what? And she said, well, I showed my butcher's knife. He goes, well, but they hadn't come in your house yet. And she said, I know. Oh, that was the God. whole idea. I didn't want to come in. And that was enough. Now, those laws were done in the 50s. Because what happened was there was a lot of gang, uh, uh, gang violence in the 50s. And gangs were using the idea of uh, somebody's being attacked and they were saying, oh, I just go, went to go help this guy who was being attacked. So they were abusing that aspect of the self-defense law. And there was an overreaction where they just basically said, you can't, you can't take any action. Basically, everything has to be handled by first responders, by the police. And, uh, you know, you as a citizen, there's no reason for you to ever take action. And that worked up until, you know, they had a mass immigration coming in from countries where, you know, uh, they couldn't believe that the only reason people didn't use knives, guns, and, and uh, other weapons was because, the, you know, there was a law against it. And so they have this massive problem right now um, in the UK that's kind of trying to be swept under the under the uh, the the thing. So, anyways, so I, I I go through, I do all my legit interviews. The last question they asked but, me on the BBC. But wait, what happened to this reality star with the butcher knife? Did, did they? Oh, she had, she went through she went through prosecution, and uh, literally the judge finally dismissed it. You know, the judge finally dismissed it. There was a sixty-seven-year-old. Um, I'm sorry. Yeah. 67 year old pensioner. So uh, an elderly person, he and his wife had a guy upstairs in their, in their uh, apartment building who was just crazy. He was a crazy drug addict, 37 years old, big guy. 
um, comes in, you know, the guy, the old man goes upstairs, knocks on the door, says, could you please turn the music down? You're just, you know, this is ridiculous. My wife's trying to sleep. And the guy just kind of looks at him, walks in. Five minutes later, he comes through the door, kicks the door open, has a knife, and goes to attack his wife. Well, this guy's an old World War II vet, and he was a boxer. Hadn't boxed like in, you know, 40, 50 years. Well, he beats the crap out of this much bigger guy. Hmm. He got prosecuted. He got prosecuted all the way up to where the judge had to dismiss it and say, this is absolutely ridiculous. The judge was not able to overturn. He basically was able to pardon the, uh, the pensioner for protecting his wife. Oh it's, it's just, yeah, it the, the laws, the laws are very almost. extreme over there and, and they're being looked at right now. In all fairness, they're, they're starting to be looked at now. And a lot of it was because, because of my incident. So what happened was the last question they asked me was they said, uh, well, you know, hey, we know you're, you come here a couple times a year. Next time you come, are you planning on visiting any of the ride areas? Do you have customers, clients there? And I said, absolutely. I said, I do. I said, actually, in Birmingham and in Tottingham, I have two clients that wanted me to come by because they wanted to show me where they were at when they rec- recognized the signs of asocial violence and they were able to get out. You know, they were very thankful. Part of a lot of what my training involves is kind of recognizing the signs and getting yourself out of there. So a very innocuous statement. Everybody reports it legit. You know, uh, all the all the major major te- uh, uh, you know media does that over there, except for the mirror. <laughs> the mirror, which is kind of a tabloid, kind of like a, you know, uh, um, like a, a National Enquirer type tabloid. It writes Larkin to lead riot tour. <laughs> basically. And they said basically that I was going to go into these areas and incite vigilanteism. And it was just kind of, you know, they were making a play on it. Uh, somebody had put up a website that kind of encouraged, you know, like, hey, take action type stuff. You know, I mean, I, you, you have people that, that, you know, try to jump on bandwagons all the time. Um, I didn't think anything of it. So apparently they issued that that same MP, Rosie Parks, uses that mirror, that mirror piece sends it to her friend who was in the green room, who is now Theresa May, the UK Home Secretary, and issues it right away. So, I mean, it was just, it was a knee-jerk reaction. There was a lot of, you know, there was a lot of reaction after the the riots. It really was a, it really shook the whole nation there. And it was easy for the UK Secretary, the Home Secretary, to issue a travel ban to me, just, you know, knee-jerking, because they were so afraid that, you know, citizens were just said, hey, this is enough, and it was going to go on. It was absolutely ridiculous. You know, I didn't find out anything about it, though. They said they tried to contact me. I never received anything. I go to board a plane the following May here in Vegas. I go to the Virgin counter. I'm going to check in. And all of a sudden, you know, I'm, I'm, and it's absolutely packed. And I'm, I'm going into the premium, uh, the premium line. And I'm getting everything. And I've done it, you know, many, many times. Hand my passport over. And all of a sudden, I can tell just from the, uh, the, uh, the ticket agent, Something's up because they're delaying. They're saying, oh, there seems to be something here, Mr. Larkin. Just wait a minute. <laughs> it was like a scene out of a movie. Were you scared? The, this is like the born identity nah, or something. No, I, I'm cracking up. I'm, I'm going, this is, this, is, this is strange. I knew something was up. James, it was like something out of a movie. A guy comes behind me. He's in a three-piece suit. I swear to God, all he needed was the bowler cap and the umbrella, and it would have been your perfect British, you know, stereotype, uh, yeah. you know, government government person. And he says, Mr. Larkin, now this is in front of everybody, you know, in front of everybody that's in the line there. Mr. Larkin, um, I'm from the UK uh, border, um, border agency. I want to present you this letter from the Home Secretary. 
Um, you know, uh, you have been issued a travel ban. You are a threat to the UK. Um, you know, we feel you're a threat to the UK uh, citizenry and you will not be allowed to board this flight. It was like, I go from this packed area. It was like the parting of the Red Sea. I mean, oh everybody, God, everybody just night. thought, who the hell is this guy? And literally they thought, you know, they looked at me like I was just this, you know, this massive, you know, terrorist that was leaving. Uh, it was really, very, very dramatic and very ridiculous because they had said, hey, we already, we already informed you. This, they issued this letter in the December and they, if they had correctly informed me, why did they fly a guy 6,000 miles to personally give me this letter as I was boarding the, the, the you know, the flight? Uh, and the reason that's important is because when I went to fight this thing, when the, the letter that was issued in December says you have 90 days to contest this. And after that, it's three to five years and we'll decide whether or not you can, you know, take it to court. When I fought that and I said, Hey, listen, you know, there's no, they, they didn't get me this letter. Nobody ever informed me that there was a travel ban and I'd like to, you know, I'd like to get due process on this. And the judge, you know, sided with the government and said, Nope, you didn't respond in time. Uh, so we'll see you in three to five years. Oh my basically. God. Have you been yeah. back since? No, I've tried a couple of times. I, I, I've moved all of my operations from where I would, I used to do a lot of training in London and now I do it in Paris. Um, some of my staff's really kind of happy about that. They prefer Paris. But, uh, you know, I, I, this year, this year is the first year as of January that I can look at, uh, at fighting it. But quite honestly, I think I'm going to wait till there's a change in the government because, um, it, it, the, the laws over there are very different or very different in how you can, per, you know, yeah, maybe you could um, go there something. and get arrested. Well, that's, if they would even let me, they won't even let me, you know, I, I wouldn't even be able to get on a, on any sort of a plane where I'd have to use my passport to get in. It's, uh, you know, even if I tried, uh, you know, coming in from Paris, it would be really difficult. So, so I do want to, um, learn, you know, you know, and I know it's hard in a podcast to kind of explain, um, some of the things you teach, but what I really want to learn first is, uh, your origin story, like you, uh, you've essentially created a career, at, and I'm gonna be, I'm gonna be blatant, like o- over the top, but you've created a career of, and to some extent, teaching people how to kill other people in a worst case scenario, and yeah. I find that fascinating because you know most people don't create their own careers at all, let alone this type of career. So, so where did you come from? Like, how did you, how did you, how did you start getting into this? And how did you go from kind of military slash training to building your own business around this? Um, I was a Navy brat. My dad was an officer in the Navy, uh, born in Boston. Uh, my grandparents were, I had uh, one, one side of the family was from uh, the Dedham area and uh, the other part of the family was from the Cape. And my grandfather that was living in Dedham was uh, originally a South Boston guy. And early on, got us involved, you know, um, my, myself and my cousins, uh, with boxing. He was just a huge boxing fan. But he was also a street fighter. And his grandfather was a real hard guy um, and owned pool halls and the whole deal. And, uh, you know, supposedly ran liquor with Joe Kennedy. Uh, mm-hmm. My grandmother denied it to her dying day that that was ever a situation. But... Uh, my grandfather basically was the first guy to kind of go legit. He was a jazz musician. He'd been in a lot of, a lot of rough, rough areas. And so he would take us and he really loved to teach us boxing. And probably the first seminal thing where I realized there was a difference between, um, 
a sport and survival on the street was my grandfather was sitting there and, and we were going over some boxing rules and he said, boys, this is what you do. And here's in the ring. And he just paused and I was probably about six years old. And we were down in the basement of his house. We had a, one of those big East coast house and the basement was where we did all of our kind of rough housing and stuff. And he points out the window and he said, but if anybody tries to hurt you out there, he goes, this is what you do. And then he basically showed just injuries to human body. I mean, he, he showed us how to punch somebody in the bladder and then, you know, use an uppercut. That was his favorite, uh, his, his favorite technique for the street. And it was interesting, you know, as a little kid, you know, if my mom had any idea what my grandfather was doing, I don't, I don't think she ever would let us hang out. But uh, that was the first time where I realized, hey, there's a difference. There's a difference between um, an organized sport and how what, what happens out in the street. And just because you're good in one doesn't mean you're going to survive in the other. And that was just the first kind of little little uh, seed that was planted in me. And I just was always fascinated, I think, because I grew up uh, in a Navy family. I was in Navy towns all the time. We constantly were playing combat. I was fascinated with um, – you know, with, with warriors, I was always fascinated with it, not so much from an uh, aggressive violence standpoint, but just kind of the idea of, wow, what did it really take for these, these, these warriors that had, you know, didn't have the technology, they actually had to face, you know, face themselves, they had to actually, you know, go against each other, you know, man to man, and fight in these horrific situations, you know, what would it take to, to actually, you know, gear yourself up for that. And so that was just kind of an, a, an interest of mine. I, I guess, you know, if you if you just take out the last thousand or so years of human evolution, then all fighting must have been essentially hand to hand. Yeah. Yeah. There was, there was some version of it. And, um, you, you know, violence is just, it's funny. Violence is such a huge part of human history. And, you know, in this generation, it's, it's really, uh, you know, I, I think my passion in, in exploring the subject is the fact that, there's this misnomer out there. There's this idea that if you look at the subject, it makes you a predator. It makes you a uh, it makes you a criminal, and that's the biggest lie that's out there. It's 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 got to the point to where the only people that have access to the tool of violence are the criminals, and it's because the information is put in the wrong context, and that's the challenge. The challenge is how do you put information like this in a context that makes any sense whatsoever to a sane, socialized human being. And and for me, that's that's where my passion is. And, and that's probably where um, I still get the motivation. I still get as excited to share that type of information with people because um, so it's just such a real it's such a real subject. I mean, it can literally change your life in seconds. And I have to remind people that, hey, we you know, regardless of all the great technology that we have right now, and it's an amazing time to be alive. Um, we live in a physical world and we, we often forget that. And, and that's something that just, you know, unfortunately, people usually see me after the fact something's happened and I can't undo what's already been done. So my goal in, in reaching out with, uh, you know, amazing opportunities like this is to hopefully reach people, you know, on the, the 30 percent of the people. You know, I, 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 my clientele usually 70, 30, 70 percent of the people come to me after something's already happened. I only reach 30 percent of the people prior to violence ever entering their life. And so. Doing something like this, I hope I reach out and probably cause some people to, you know, consider uh, consider some of the ideas that, uh, um, you know, we share when it comes to, you know, how to look at violence. So, so when did you make the break from doing this as a job to doing this as a business? Um, it, it was I was 
my story, my, my, you know, my story is I went in, all I wanted to do when I, uh, I told you I was a Navy brat when I was uh, about 13 years old, my dad moved, uh, he had a ship over in San Diego and we lived in Navy housing, uh, officer housing in Coronado, California. And it literally was right across the street from the, uh, the basic underwater demolition school where you go to train to be a SEAL. And so at, 14, at 13, 14 years old, you know, I have my little brother, too. He's two years younger than me. We would sit there and literally in our backyard is this huge obstacle course. We got these guys running around. You have uh, these instructors who are just like these superhumans, you know, forcing these guys and torturing them, doing all these physical activities. And we got to watch it. It was like it was like literally watching, you know, gladiator sport or something. And, and we just, you know, we, we had no idea what it was because back then it was the late 70s, early 80s. The SEALs didn't have the prominence and the exposure that they do now. Hardly anybody knew anything about the SEAL teams back then. And uh, they were definitely the redheaded children of the, of the Navy. You know, in the Navy, they weren't a prominent position at all. They were, it was very much looked down upon if you went to the SEAL community back then. Really? Well, um, I would think that the SEALs were considered like the toughest of the Marines or whatever. Like, why? why was it looked down upon? Well, because you got to remember, it was at the height of the Cold War and nuclear, you know, the nuclear Navy was the big deal. You know, you were either a pilot, you know, that was prestigious. If you wanted, if, especially if you're an officer, you would, the last thing you want to do is go into uh, the SEAL teams. You were seen as kind of a thug when it came to the Navy, you know, because the Navy didn't really know how to deal with them. Uh, you know, basically we're commandos. They, they weren't, they weren't a group that really fit within the, uh, you know, the Navy, um, the, you know, the Navy mission, basically, they were an offshoot of the amphibious Navy. And, you know, really that the, the, the traditional Navy back then didn't really have a place for them. I mean, you couldn't really progress in your career um, as an officer much beyond if you if you made it to the commander level, or let alone the captain level, that was just unheard of. I mean, it was just unthinkable. You know, so you went there because you loved the job. You went there because you wanted to become an operator and you wanted to do the job. And um, it was an interesting time. You know, I was when I went in to that community, it was during the time where everything kind of changed over. We went from being this uh, this this unit that was in the Navy to all of a sudden we were part of a special operations command. And then the prominence level and the opportunities in the special operations um, field just opened up to anybody that wanted to be part of it. And it was a really, really interesting time for me to be there because, uh, you know, we went from this Cold War era. I mean, I grew up wanting all I ever wanted to do was fight Russians. You know, that was my whole my whole life. Um, and then all of a sudden the Berlin Wall comes down and now the world completely changes. And how you look at the world from a military standpoint completely changed. And um it was, it was a very interesting time, but I'm, I'm going a little bit ahead of myself because so here I was this kid and I immediately decided that's what I wanted to do. So my dad tried to dissuade me. He said, great, you got to go to college first. So I got an ROTC scholarship. I went to USC and I literally, all I did, they used to just call me the Spartan at USC because all I did was prepare. I took cold showers. I knew everything I had to do to prep myself to get into the teams. Um, when it was time for selection from college, for slots, there was only two slots available. 275 guys made the cut. Many more people applied for those two slots, but 275 guys were looking at those two slots. Um, and I knew everybody looked the same on paper. So I decided to fly to Washington. I had a buddy that was going to school in Washington at the American University. I went and stayed with him. 
And I camped outside of, in, at the Pentagon, the Navy building, I camped outside of the detailer's office. The detailer is the guy that makes the ultimate decision on who gets to go to training. And I stayed out there it, it, for three days. I sat outside his office. He wouldn't see me. Um, the secretary there, I found out. Like the sec- they, they didn't want to, could they, I mean, you were outside the Pentagon. Like, could they have arrested you there or anything? No, no, I was, they let me in. I mean, I was, I was, I had my ID and everything cause I was a midshipman. So yeah. I was, I was there and I was in my little midshipman uniform from ROTC. <laughs> so they had to let me in the building, but he didn't have to see me. And, and quite frankly, he had no reason to see me. I mean, I was, I was a nobody, but I had, I had, got a relationship. I had found out through my buddies in the community that the gatekeeper was the secretary. She'd been there for 20 plus years at the detailer's office. She, she sees all the detailers come in and out because a detailer only is only there for a couple of years. Her name was Margaret. I had been working Margaret for like three months. I said, well, you know, I'm going to be in DC and I'd love to drop by. She, oh, I don't think that's a good idea. So I'd send her flowers and, and I'd go back and forth because I just wanted to get in front of this guy. So I'm sitting there on the third day uh, a young officer that was working there, he was a, a young JG that was working there, comes out and he says, hey, Commander Golay will see you for three minutes. And I said, okay, great, thank you. Get in the office, he just looks at me, he goes, Midshipman, what are you here for? And I said, well, sir, I just wanted to let you know you got a hard decision to make. Um, you, you know, I know everybody looks the same on paper. I just want to let you know that if you select me, I said, I know attrition's high. I said, I will not quit. And you know, I just wanted you to hear that from me, sir. So you, you, you know, take that in consideration. That's great. And so it, it, you did two things. One is you kind of found a way to network your way in. Then you were persistent and then you solved a problem for him. You didn't just ask, Hey, select me. You said a problem is that there's uh, attrition and I won't, uh, I'm going to help you with that problem. Yeah. And then that, and that was it. And so, and I did it for two reasons. Jane. And I always say this for young guys. I said, Anything that you want to do, and I don't mean young guys, young guys, girls, if there's something you want to do, you just want to do everything that's within your control so that regardless of what the outcome is, you can look back and say, hey, I did everything absolutely possible, you know, in this situation. I mean, it made no sense. I mean, you got to understand, I had a Navy scholarship. Back then, there was nothing else. I couldn't laterally transfer anywhere else. If I didn't get into the SEAL teams, I was stuck on a ship. I never wanted to be on a ship. My dad did that. I hated ships. You know, the only thing I wanted to do is, so it was absolutely ridiculous to even, you know, that, you know, when I look back on it. So anyways, I'm walking out. I think I blew it because the guy was a real hard ass with me. He ended up becoming a very good friend, but you know, he's absolute hard ass with me. And I'm walking out kind of dejected going, man, I think I wasted my time, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I'm I'm walking down the hall and literally the the same little officer that, that walked me in runs down. And he goes, man, he goes, I got to tell you, I can't just let you out of here. He goes, I, I got to tell you, he goes, I really respect what you just did. He said, we've, he, he goes, we've been talking about you for the last three days. He goes, just to let you know, he said, you had the slot at the second day. We <laughs> just wanted, we, we just wanted to see how long you'd hang out. And uh, it was very funny. No, listen, there's a reason I'm saying this. So then I get into training, right? And I'm superhuman. And the reason I'm superhuman is because since I was 14 years old, I had been schooled. By all the instructors, I knew everything about training. I knew I knew how to train. I knew how to condition myself, so that when I got into training, I was killing it. My boat team, I was leading, you know, because I'm an officer, I was leading my boat team. You know, I had everybody squared away. They they knew how to operate within there. We were just killing it. We went into Hell Week, which is this five day evolution where they keep you up. It's the one big thing they always talk about in SEAL training. My team won it, and by winning it, what happens is you get secured, you get you get relieved. 
a half day earlier than anybody else. And that's because we won all of the major events. They have little competitions throughout the week. So I did that. I go into other training. I'm killing it and all that on all aspects of that. I'm three weeks from graduation. I'm a shoe in for anchor man. So I'm, I'm like, you know, unstoppable at this point. I'm, I'm arrogant. Um, I already know which team I want to go to. Back then it was SEAL Team 4, but they were doing all this Cotter and Cox work. That's where I wanted to go. I was already have, I, I was shooing for the slot. We're doing a dive a couple of days, you know, like, like, you know, three weeks from graduation, a no big deal dive. I had always had an issue with my ears, but I had, I had, I had slipped through. I, it hadn't, it hadn't got me yet, meaning I, I had trouble. I had smaller eustachian tubes and it makes it really kind of hard for me to, you know, uh, to regulate my, um, uh, Valsalva and, and adjust for diving, you know, the pressures of the dives, but I had made it. I, no big deal. I, I finished all the hard stuff. We're in a dive. There's a pressure wave that was coming. We were underwater just doing some diving. There's a pressure wave that, that, that came through and it's kind of like an underwater wave. They had been doing some explosives training far, far, far away. So this little pressure wave comes by and just hits my ear perfectly. So it's like a wave of water that just kind of hits you underwater. And my ear was exposed and it blew my eardrum. I mean, oh. it blew, it blew my eardrum to where water, just cold water. It felt like it spiked up in the middle of my forehead, released all my semi, my, my fluid, my semicircular canal. And I went into vertigo. I didn't, had no idea which way was up. The only thing that saved me was the fact that there was a tow line on this uh, IBS boat, you know, it's a training boat. They have those those black rubber boats that you see all the time. And I grabbed the, the anchor line of that, and I was pulling myself up. As I'm pulling myself up, I feel like I'm pulling myself to the right 45 degrees down. That's how screwed up I was. They said when I hit the when I hit the uh, the surface and they pulled me into the boat, my head was slamming uncontrollably because I I was in full vertigo at that point. Oh no! It ended my career before it even started. And it was the first time that I had ever experienced true injury to the human body to, to where you couldn't gut it out. I couldn't be, you know, I couldn't just, you know, uh, you know, shake it off. I, I couldn't just kind of gut through it. This was something that absolutely shut me down and destroyed my career. So I went from this really arrogant guy to like a pariah because, you know, anytime it doesn't matter if it's beyond your capabilities or if it's a, a you know, a, literally a medical condition or, or a, an accident. You know, and when you're in a training environment like that, it's 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 a shark tank and nobody wants to be around anybody that, you know, all of a sudden is weak and, and you're seen as weak if you get injured. And, I, you know, I, they tried to keep me around. I tried to heal up. Didn't happen. So my whole world's over at this point. I, I, I'm sitting here going, oh, my God, you know, one of my, my one of my really good friends who I used to rib all the time, he ends up getting my my slot. They don't know what to do with me. They, they want to keep me in the community because I did so well. And they found a, an intelligence position. So they sent me to Intel school back east in, uh, on the East Coast. And I came back and I worked for the Admiral of the SEAL teams in a position that I had no business being in whatsoever. Um, he, I, it was a very, very junior guy to extremely senior command. The reason they gave me the slot was because the SEAL teams were a very small unit, you know, a, a group of guys. And we just got into this kind of joint special operations community. The Army outnumbered us by, you know, leaps and bounds. So they knew by putting me in this junior, a uh, junior guy in this, in this position, they didn't have to take an active duty SEAL out of one of the teams. And that was really valuable. Only reason I was there, I was surrounded literally by the legends of the SEAL teams. And these guys were these guys were um, looking at this problem. The Berlin Wall had come down, and now they they sat there and they realized, hey, the world's changing. 
we're going to be going from this idea of, you know, massive uh, fighting of the Soviet threat to, you know, we're, we're going to have these brush wars. We're going to have, uh, we're going to have, you know, civil wars all over the place. You, they predicted what was going on in Yugoslavia and all of that. And they said, we need to respond. We have to respond to our tactics. And that means we're going to have be putting our hands on people again, you know, and they really hadn't done any real hand to hand combat training, you know, in a serious sense since Vietnam era, because, it was just seen as irrelevant when we were fighting the Soviets because it was just a very different, uh, a very different protocols. Yeah. And so I just happened because I was a young guy. I had three martial arts backgrounds. You know, I had been doing martial arts as a little kid. My grandfather obviously had taught me a lot of stuff early on. I was a young guy. So to them, it was like, oh, good. We got this kid we can kick around. You know, uh, he'd be a good punching bag. Only reason they had me in, they liked me, you know, but I, I had no business being there from an operational standpoint. I had no combat background. You know, but they, they had me come in. They started looking at martial artists from all over the world. And uh, it, it was interesting. At one point, a DEA buddy called me. Um, I had a lot of friends in the community. And he said, hey, are you guys still doing that punchy, kicky stuff? Because they were just derisive about it. They thought it was crazy <laughs> that we were doing it. And I said, you, you I would said, think DEA would be more hands on, uh, right? Gotta, because they're fighting very, drug, drug it, this, this is all pre UFC. And every, you got to understand that the world was very different back then. And, uh, yeah, they were, they were derisively laughing at it, you know, saying, oh, you guys are doing this. And I said, yeah, yeah, we're doing it. And they go, well, listen, there's a guy right here in, in Pacific Beach in San Diego. I was literally living in Pacific Beach. And I go, what do you mean? We're flying guys in from all over the world. He goes, no, no, no. This guy's a Vietnam vet. He's a complete, you know, a-hole, but you get along with guys like that. And, and to me, that was a compliment, meaning <laughs> I, I did. And, and that's absolutely true. Some of the best individuals when it comes to, you know, real information, when it comes to this kind of stuff, socially, they're very, they, they can be extremely difficult guys to get along with. They're, uh, they're very, they, they tolerate, they don't tolerate BS. Um, they're very opinionated. Oftentimes it hurts their careers. Um, but, you know, they're invaluable. I mean, I mean, they're, they're the kind of guys that, that we used to laugh. They, we, there's a group within it that they just weren't political guys. Um, but they're like, geez, you just want to put them in glass with a, with a little sign that says break in case of war. Um, because these were the guys you wanted next to you. And that's what he meant. And, and I said, Oh, and he goes, yeah, he goes, you want to check this guy out. And the only reason I went was because this guy was from a unit in Vietnam that was just, you know, legendary. It's called the 173rd Charlie company at Westmoreland kept them out in the jungle longer than most any other group. And they were just ruthless. They were just absolutely you know they get into the tunnels and all this other stuff and this guy was a he, he ran point on it you know uh, at a lot of, he was a tunnel guy he got in there just just you know really had a, a an impressive history if you're, and, if you're a guy like that who's always running point how do you in the long run avoid landmines it was different back then he, he, he was very good at, at getting the booby trust but he literally when i say run point he not only run, run point there but he would also he would be the guy that would go into the tunnels with a forty five and a knife and and uh, you know kill guys and, and go in. I mean, it's just it was just very, he's a very different guy. Um, I started training with him. I, I went in and I said, "Wow, this guy!" I met him and he was unlike anybody I'd ever seen. The way he trained guys. Uh, when I walked in and I had a pretty good martial arts background, plus I'd been training with all these top guys that they were flying in. 
I walked into what looked like a slow motion prison riot. I saw kids who were just like just college kids, normal college kids doing stuff that I hadn't seen some of the best commandos be able to do, meaning using knives, doing stuff that looked like real violence. I hadn't seen any training like this before. I went in and talked to the guy and uh, basically started training. Six months into it, I'm training with the SEALs. I'm training with my guys, you know, because we train a couple times a week. And I start doing things. They notice I'm doing things a little bit differently. I'm like, what are you doing? And I said, no, you know, nothing. No, no, no. You're training. What are you doing? And I said, well, I've been training with this guy. Who have you been training with? <laughs> you know, they're all pissed off at me. And I said, well, I'm training with this guy. Who is he? And so I told them the background. Like, why the hell didn't you bring him in? I said, well, who the hell am I? I said, I'm, you know, I, you guys are the guys. I said, I'm not, you know, I'm not anybody at this stage of the game. And they go, bring him in. Sounds interesting. So they bring him in and I'm, I'm actually nervous because I got to get this guy signed in. What I hadn't told him was he hates the military. He's a former Vietnam vet, but he thinks anybody that's a lifer is an idiot, you know, cause he's, he comes from that era, you know? And, uh, he, and in particular, he had no respect for the SEALs. He didn't, he, he'd met a couple when he was in Vietnam and he didn't like them. So I'm going, Oh shit, you know, what am I going to do here? You know, I was like, bring this guy in. They, they start talking to him and he, they start talking about principles, you know, really like, okay, how, how would you handle this situation, that situation? He gets described a situation with a, um, a, a, a counterterrorist situation where a boat, a, a ship was taken down. So the, the then SEAL Team 6, that's what they were called back then, um, was going in to, through a hatch to go take these guys out. And a hatch is just like a, it's a door on a ship. As the hatch opens up, the first guy, the lead guy gets in, second guy in gets held up by one of the bad guys. And literally none of the other guys can get inside. So the guy that went in, he's fighting for his life. And they couldn't figure out. Eventually it worked itself out, but it had been a problem within the teams. You know, nobody had been able to solve that problem. The guy I brought in, Jerry, is just sitting there listening to the problem. And before they even finished describing it, he had everybody line up. And when they, they simulated the attack on the second guy, Jerry just basically told them, okay, do this, sit down, boom. And the rest of the team just ran. And he showed them a very simple, straightforward move that ended up, you know, being it for the, the guy that got grabbed to be able to shoot the bad guy and let everybody get in right away. And so wait, so wait, I, I'm trying to picture. So the first guy goes in. He's mm-hmm. fighting for his life. The second guy is like blocked and is blocking okay, the hatch. So you've probably seen movies where they show an entry team going in. They're all lined up and they go through the door. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, you know, I mean, it's just typical now in Hollywood. Imagine the second guy as he tries to go in with all the other guys behind him gets held up. He can't, he can't move and nobody can get past him. So the first guy that's in is now by himself fighting. So he's held up because maybe one of the terrorists has a gun yeah. and says, don't move. No, no, no. He's literally fighting with him. He grabbed him and held him up. And, and, and the guy was wrestling, trying to wrestle his way out to try to get in. He couldn't. He couldn't, couldn't move this guy. I see. So and, what, what, did, what did your friend say was the solution there? Well, this is all, this, it's kind of hard to imagine. But all he did was this guy grabbed, basically, he had an MP5 that was grabbed. And that's a small submachine gun. So he was holding onto that. So imagine you're holding onto a gun. And all that all Jerry did was had the guy that was having his gun held. He had him lean back and sit down. And when you do that, the gun naturally pulls forward. Imagine two forces pulling towards the center. And it literally pulled the gun towards the center to where it's easy to kill the guy and just shoot him right away. 
So and all it is so so the first question he answered the reason that's important is the first question he answered had nothing to do with punching and kicking. Hmm. It had to do it had to do with real you know real gunfighting and, and the application of it. And that's the beauty of what we were able to, to to bring to this was the idea of physically coordinating your body so it's synergistic with whatever you have tools. You know the assumption is always that the threat's going to be bigger, faster, and stronger. The threat's going to carry weapons. And there's going to be more than one of them. And it, it, and what was, this guy was so good at, he was rudimentary at the time, but he was really understanding how to, uh, the difference between pain and injury. The only thing that counts when your life's on the line and you're up against another human being is to put injury on them. And injury is defined as putting um, enough force into an area that you either just, that you destroy either a sensory system of the human body or a structure of the human body. And we've all experienced injury before, meaning if you touch a hot surface and your hand comes flying off, it does so involuntarily, meaning you don't use your brain to make that happen. What happens is there's a stimulus in your nervous system, your afferent and efferent nervous system, when you touch a hot surface that shoots a, a signal up very fast. And we're talking, you know, milliseconds. And it gets to basically the middle of your spine. And when it, and when the trauma shot is so high, meaning that, that response level is so high, it immediately shoots another, another uh, impulse right back down to say, hey, pull Pull that away. Protect that. Pull it away before your brain's ever informed what happens. And so that's the idea of an injury. You know, when I blew my eardrums, I had no conscious control of my of, of, my, of my body at that point. And there are areas in the human body that, if you know, that's where, that's where you put your effort. You'll take the brain out of the equation, which is the most important thing. You know, if an, if another if your if your physical threat cannot think, cannot move, and does not have control of its body, regardless of his power, his will, um, he's not going to be able to operate. And, and that's the whole idea behind you know how you really protect yourself in a life and death situation against another human being, and um, you know versus you know causing pain on somebody or trying to hurt somebody. Um, it, it's a very specific methodology that you need to use. And uh, it was fascinating. It was fascinating to see, you know, somebody succinctly, you know, really, really show this information and the fact that it assumed weapons and it made you that much better. The targeting that you put into the human body, you know, helped you, it, you know, in your hand to hand aspect of things, but also shooting everything else. I mean, targeting and, and putting, you know, where to put the effort is absolutely essential information. And uh, it, it's often overlooked when you gamify violence. And what I mean by that is like, if you look at the UFC and, and I have to be really clear, I, I'm a huge UFC fan. A lot of my, I'm here in Vegas. My training center is across from the biggest MMA training center where all the UFC guys go. Dana White's kids are there. A lot of top competitors, they're friends of mine. I love competition. It's great. The issue is, the UFC right now has 31 rules in it. 27 of those rules regard injury to the human body. And the reason you have to take injury to the human body out of competition is because that would ruin competition. You can't compete if you're there to break something on the human body. You know, I can't compete skill against skill if I'm there just to break your ankle or I'm there to, to do something to you. You know, what makes competition and combat sport competition so great is the fact that you take injury out of the equation and then you can pit skill against skill and, and all that. The problem is 
when you use a competition approach against people that just want to do violence, it often has really bad results for the person that uses the combat sport approach. And you, and you give a lot of examples of that in your in your first book where, you know, all these martial artists can't really protect themselves against a mugger. Yeah, and I mean it have, and it sounds like I'm you know, the problem is in my in my industry there's a lot of jerks. You know, especially when it comes to reality, I hate the term reality self-defense. It's such a just ridiculous term. But in that world, there's like the idea like, you know, you'll see some big fat overweight guy who's a reality self-defense guy saying, yeah, you know, MMA, you know, is ridiculous. It sucks. And I'll say, you know what, dude, spend five minutes with one of my buddies from MMA and, and, and tell me that. Yeah, that's ridiculous. MMA guys are fantastic. I love training guys like that. It's just they need additional information. So one does not replace the other. There's no destruction has no the skill sets of destruction, which is what I teach for you to survive, has no place in the arena of combat sports. So wait, so so how then still did you get again go from job to starting your own business? Because that's that's yeah. the leap that many people want to know. There's a certain fear factor there that that people want to know how to get through. Oh, absolutely. So I you know so I did Gulf War one. I did Panama and I did Gulf War One. Um, and in Gulf War One, I did as a reservist. I was in a I was in a really interesting group, uh, and, and it was fun. But then everybody kind of forgets that after Gulf War One, when Clinton came into office, it was a really, really you know lousy time to be in the military. Um, there were a lot of cutbacks. There were really no jobs to do. Uh, basically, the derisive term was you know you could go hand out pizza in Haiti. Um, and do, you know, you could do, you could do, uh, you know, human, human, uh, uh, rights, uh, you know, missions with the UN, which is really dicey because it's, it was, that's a whole quagmire that's just ridiculous. Um, and guys just were getting out left and right. And there was really nothing for me to do. I, as from the intelligence community standpoint, I was a Navy Intel guy. And yes, my specialty was special operations. And that's all I did. And I got to work, I got to work with everybody, but I didn't have any place to go. What's an example, like, what's an example, like, movie style special operation that you were engaged in, if, if you can say? Um, well, I, you know, when I did Panama, I, I was down in Panama a couple times, you know, it, it was called Blue Spoon back then. And, and it was interesting. We, there were three different times that was supposed to go down in Panama. And the one time it went down, um, uh, it, the one time it went down was of course the time I wasn't down there. My, my, uh, my, uh, my compadre was down there, uh, during that time. And I was the guy reporting in. And it was a sober time for me because uh, I don't know how many people remember, but that time, you know, uh, since then was the first time that we lost a, a huge number of guys. It was the most guys we lost since Vietnam. We lost seven guys in one day on Patia Airfield. And we lost it mainly because we couldn't talk to anybody like all everybody forgets now because we're very joint. But back then, you know. Our communications couldn't talk to the Army, which couldn't talk to the Air Force. And so guys were lying on a airfield, basically, because they couldn't get anybody to come get them huh. at that point. It was really sad. And one of my really good friends was the first guy killed. He was literally the first guy killed. And I had to um, I had to tell the Admiral, you know, when, when we were briefing that that was, you know, I was getting the reports when it came in. Um, what was what was sobering about that was that, that was my friend that 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 ended up taking the spot at SEAL Team 4. Oh, no. um, yeah, it was, it, was, it, was, it was very sobering. So I, I, did, I, did, I did that, and then uh, Gulf War II was over before it even started. I mean, Gulf War I was over before it even started. I mean, it was just a, a very short campaign, and there really was nothing to do um, you know, from our aspects. So I get out, and, and uh, 
Well, you know, okay, I'll tell you one thing that was really interesting. Uh, back then, uh, the, SEAL, the SEALs were really the only group, special operations group back then, that were allowed to operate in national forests um, without not, uh, to operate in national forests with, fully armed. So a SEAL team could go in with loaded like they would be for combat to practice in, in a national forest. And you go, oh, okay, what's the big deal about that? Well, it was kind of interesting in the fact that all of a sudden we started discovering, um, like, like the DEA would start discovering very sophisticated pot fields and, uh, you know, drug fields, you know, poppy fields and all this other stuff within our national forests that were really booby trapped at a very sophisticated level. And so for a time, it was, it's been exposed since, but it was really interesting back then. For a time, all of a sudden, what would happen is DEA would say, Hey, we found this area. And, you know, it's way beyond our capabilities to handle the, the explosives and the, um, the booby traps and stuff like that. And then, you know, miraculously, a training mission would come up and a SEAL team would just happen to be dropped in that area and just happen to run across, you know, this, this, this highly booby trapped area. And so it was really interesting. How it was you, really interesting how to see how survive those? Oh, the guys would go in totally. I mean, you know, they, they understand how to do e, you know, uh, you know, IEDs and all that other stuff back then. It wasn't as sophisticated as it is now. Um, but back then it was very interesting. I mean, for me, it was more interesting to see how you could skirt the idea if you had to of, you know, you're not military, U.S. military is not supposed to operate on U.S. soil. And so it was interesting to see how, you know, time extreme situations would allow that in other extreme situations, you know, we had a couple of prison riots where, you know, highly specialized special operations groups were brought in to help bring the, the, uh, the, the riot down and they were deputized very quickly. And for me, that was a very interesting process to see at the national level, you know, kind of some of the decisions that were made. And I was a very young officer to see some of this stuff. I don't want to give the impression that I had anything to do with it. I had nothing to do with it, but I was able to observe it. And, um, it was, it was for me very fascinating to see how, um, you know, a real threat can, you know, can make things happen that, you know, supposedly aren't supposed to be able to be done. Hmm. You know, it was, it was very interesting. So, okay. So you're, you're still, you're still a SEAL, but, or I mean, you're still, you know, doing no, all I'm, your, I'm an Intel guy. Your, your yeah, intel. yeah, I was never, um, yeah, I'm an Intel guy. I'm sitting there there's nothing to do. So I decided to get out and I'm going to go to wall street. I got a buddy who, uh, who could get me in. And, you know, that was kind of always the plan. And uh, his big goal was <laughs> he always lamented the fact that he never had a he hadn't had his hundred thousand um, dollars so he could open up his own bank during the savings and loans crisis because he couldn't believe that if you had a hundred grand, you'd get a million bucks, you know, hmm. and it was just really fun. You know, you know how it was back then. And so, you know, I really didn't have a desire to do it. You know, it really wasn't something that was really something I wanted to do. So I said, hey, listen, I'm taking six months off and. I'll, I'll see you in six months. You know, I'll and come so you out. Had six and months play. worth of savings set aside. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I was fine. I wasn't. I mean, I wasn't rolling in it or anything. But I, I, I had very low burn rate. I wasn't somebody who had ever lived beyond his means. And uh, the guy that I had brought in that ended up doing the pilot program for the SEAL teams and and did the initial hand to hand combat uh, training. I had become an instructor while I was out there, and it was really great. And uh, he said, "Hey." You know, I'm starting to get a lot of inquiries, you know, because a lot of the guys that we trained got out and now they're working for corporate securities, you know, large, large uh, international firms. And we're getting I'm getting requirements from, you know, for to do some corporate security training, which would help me out with that because, you know, he wasn't an educated guy. 
And, and he, you know, he, he knew I had some, you know, good background and, uh, the ability to kind of manage that kind of stuff and also be an instructor. And I said, yeah, yeah, sure. I'll, I'll help you out with that. It'd be fun. Well, six months turned into 12 years and we, we just created this business where I had access. I would, I would meet people that I would never have had the ability to meet, you know, uh, a lot of CEOs, uh, and one thing led to another. And what was interesting was the topic was it was a topic that I thought would only stay within military and specialized law enforcement. I never thought the the general population, you know, the, the general population would ever be interested in this because it was just too, too back then my 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 thinking, especially being a young guy, was oh it's just too aggressive, too too uh, you know extreme for people. Um, but like what, but what what sort of topic? Like let's say let's say you're Bill Gates and someone's uh, attacking you, you have to be able to fight back. Yeah, well, that's the, and and there, that's exactly what happens. Is the reason guys like that, like you mentioned Tony Robbins, and you mentioned some of the other people. You know, Tony is one of the few people that actually has talked about me and has been a huge supporter. And I, I am just eternally grateful to him, and he's had me come out and train his platinum groups. I, you know, a couple times a year, I'm always training some of his top people and working with him personally, and it's it's just been a great situation. But the majority of people like that that I train, of course, I got non-disclosures and they come to me because something has really happened and they don't want people to know that, you know, that that they're actually getting training, which which is smart, you know, because because of those situations. Bill Gates, a guy like that is I've I've worked with somebody like that um, it has to be somebody that travels a lot. Those were the people that initially came to me were a lot of these guys that do international travel. That was kind of my specialty. Um, and I had guys that were going into, you know, I had a lot of oil company people, uh, and they're going into these remote areas. And of course, kidnapping was huge, South America, all of that kind of, kind of stuff. And they weren't used to it. You know, they weren't used to dealing with, uh, real violence. They go to parts of the world that violence is a commodity. It's a currency. And, they just aren't used to it because they're used to dealing within the U.S. And, um, you know, just kind of giving them an education on what it takes to survive a physical confrontation usually leads to behavioral changes, uh, meaning you don't take unnecessary risks. A lot of people, and I find it with my civilian clients, the big, the big draw was the fact that I identify for people a lot of areas where they're sleeping with their head on, a, I call it sleeping with your head on a railroad track. And just, you know, a lot of people operate that way and they think, hey, the train didn't come last night, so everything's fine. I'll just keep doing what I'm doing. What's an and, example? Like, what, let's say, let's say I travel down to South America, not that I'm like a big CEO or anything, but what, 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 what do I need to, like, like my wife is from Argentina, for instance, and she mm -hmm. says, when I'm in Buenos Aires, I shouldn't talk on my cell phone because then yeah. I'm an obvious target after that. Well, you know what? I'm not even. I'm not even going to go. I'm not even going to go outside the country. I'm not even going to go outside your city. So you're, you know, we, we, you guys had, I think, like four years ago, you had a young actress. Um, she's out coming out of a club with her boyfriend, her friend, and her friend's boyfriend, and they're all walking, and it's in the lower 30s down there, and they're walking home. It's approximately, I want to say, like 1:30 at night. They decided to walk to the subway station rather than, you know, get a cab or anything like that. And they, they do so and they get, uh, they get a mug. They have two guys come out. One guy grabs, uh, grabs the, uh, the purse, knocks one of the boyfriends down, literally, you know, hits him pretty hard and pulls a gun. And this girl just decides that, you know, this shouldn't happen. She starts confronting them verbally. 
at this point. And the guy just says, listen, we just want your stuff. Give us your stuff and we'll leave. I don't want to hurt anybody. And she goes, oh, what are you going to do? You're going to shoot me? And he did. He shot her right then and there. And, oh, and oh my gosh. Who, who yeah. was this? Uh, I want to say her name was Aunt Amanda. I'll, I'll pull it, I'll pull it up while we're, while we're looking here. Cause it's in my Evernotes. Um, uh, but you know, you know, here's this girl that, um, so basically just, don't beg criminals to shoot you. <laughs> well, it's not even that James, her, her whole world was different. Meaning it wasn't, she was used to dealing. I, I find this uh, oftentimes, especially in New York. I find a lot of my New York clients cause I'm in New York all the time. There's this idea that, you know, I'm this alpha in there, just full of alphas in the business world and entertainment world. And they get their way and they're used to being aggressive in a business environment and proactive in a business environment. And they take that outside of their environment into the real world. And they forget that they're not dealing with those types of people. You have no idea who the hell you're dealing with out there. And my whole thing was there was no reason for them to be walking home or walking to a, uh, to a, uh, a subway at one thirty in the morning after being out at a club at that time, that was a completely unnecessary risk. Um, it, it, listen, I don't care if, if it's your last 20 bucks, it's a really great way to spend your last 20 bucks to grab a cab, uh, do Uber or do something like that, because you're just opening up the possibility for something like that to happen. Well, what and, she, and, she, and she had no, and she had no way of navigating that situation. She didn't have any skill sets for that. Well, what should she have done? <laughs> Done exactly what it was. It, meaning, if if they're talking to you, and they've got the jump on you at that point, they've already shown that they're willing to use violence, and they're just asking for your uh, for your things. You absolutely comply. That does not mean that they're not going to continue to use violence. But but again, it's an antisocial aggression situation where somebody is 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 talking to you in a very aggressive manner and wanting something at that point. She pushed it to the point to where she thought this was, you know, she thought she could intimidate these guys. She thought somehow she could, you know, um, she could, you know, get something, um, you know, out of them, get them to back down, which was absolutely crazy, you know. And so that's what I try to tell people is like, you know, you don't understand you're not dealing with your world. You're dealing with their world and you can't operate. You know, I, I, it's funny, like, especially when I'm dealing with, uh, with entrepreneurs who are just having these great lives, especially, you know, completely, completely successful, um, just great people. They tend to think that everybody wants to operate at their level. They don't understand the idea that if I'm living this great life where I realize, Hey, you know, it's really stupid to use violence. It's really stupid. There's so many ways you can have a great life. You don't have to operate this way. Oftentimes what people do is they'll meet somebody that's at a much lower level. Uh, they're at a survival level. When you look at either the hierarchy of means, or you look at, I like to look at the spiral dynamics, uh, protocol where somebody is living, say at the gold level, which is the ultimate level. And yet the survival level is down at the blue level. And the problem is, if you meet a guy like that who will, is willing to hold a knife to your neck, a gun to you, and ask you for something, and you try to pull them back up to your level and say, hey, come up here. Take a look at this great life you could have. You don't want to do this. That's a recipe for disaster. The only way to deal with a situation like that is you have to drop down to their level, deal with them at their level. And by doing so, you get to go back to living that great life again. 
Well, so so like, like what was an example? Like, why did Tony Robbins uh, hire you, and you get and you got to know him, and then he wrote the the intro for your your second book. Yeah, Tony contacted me. Um, he had been following me. We have we had, we had a mutual friend that I didn't even know about. We had we had a mutual friend, and who had been telling Tony about. It. Tony had had an incident um, that uh, you know, just like any celebrity, you're going to have. Uh, I'll dance around a little bit. It was a stalker uh, situation, but it wasn't necessarily against Tony. It was against a family member, and it, it really shook Tony. And he was looking for some ways of, of, of dealing with this. It was something that Tony, he had done martial arts training before, but he hadn't really dealt with somebody that if they just wanted to do violence. Um, and that was, that was how he approached me. And he came. And the one thing that I always say about Tony Robbins, if, and you, I know you've interviewed him, so you probably experienced this. I was extremely, not suspicious, but suspect. I hate, for the most part, training celebrities or anybody like that. Really, there's a sense of entitlement a lot of times. They don't really want to train. They kind of want to hang out, and they want like a, a, a like a training partner at times. They're not really serious about, you know, really wanting to get the information. Um, Tony came into it, and he trained with a group of undercover cops that I had. They had no idea that Tony was going to be in there. I just threw Tony into it. Tony was the most humble, straightforward guy. He sat there and took notes. If he asked a question, it was an incredibly relevant question. He worked with the guys. He, you know, there was no ego in, in any of it. He truly was there to learn and perform. And it was an absolute pleasure to train the guy. And he really, really liked what I, what I did. I then trained a huge group of his people. Um, after that, his staff and his family. And then after that, he said, I really want to introduce you to my platinum people, which is kind of his uh, his his premier um, group that he has of uh, of people that attend his his um, seminars. And I got to meet these guys who were just, you know, his, his people are just incredible. But what's really interesting is how, you know, how many people have had brushes with violence that um, that just have been. Um, you know, they, 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 they just, they haven't really had anything. They haven't had anything that they can, um, they can, uh, respond with. They had nothing in the toolbox. And what's so great is, you know, you can, you can give these people this information and you just see a transformation in them. And I don't mean turning them into a super ninja. That's not my goal. My goal isn't, you know, I, I will give you very straightforward information. I'll give you the physical information that you need. I'm very straightforward about that. But really, the people that survive violence and really understand how to survive violence, I'm talking like to the most elite people, you know, as far as counterterrorism and all that other stuff. It's this awareness and recognition of how to minimize the chance of it ever coming your way and also recognize the signs that, you know, you probably, you know, you, you probably don't need to continue to do what you're doing, that, that what you're doing is, is a, a dangerous thing. So, Situation, so, so what, are, what are some examples on both sides? So and by both sides, I mean, what are some things I should avoid? And, and on the flip side is if I am in a situation where uh, somebody is uh, definitely intending violence, like what should I do then? Like and I, I know it's just like uh, uh, verbal here, like you can't really show any uh, diagrams or videos, but like what's some some ideas? <laughs> 
Okay, well, let me let me put it in context on on one one particular story that that kind of shows the difference between the two. First, you know, antisocial aggression versus asocial violence. So the idea is. When can I use my communication skills? When can I talk my way out of a bad situation? When can I run? If there's choice involved, meaning if you have a choice, uh, you know, it's not the time to use violence. Um, you know, because the question normally is, when would I ever use violence, you know, to protect myself? And really, it's when you're devoid of choice. Um, and it's, it's, it's a very rare situation. The, the story I like to use is uh, in London, uh, I think 2004, there was a young barrister, young uh, lawyer, who was in uh, the Finchley area. It's a nice, it was actually a nice part of London. They had redone it. It wasn't a high threat area. And he'd come home late at night. It's about 1130 at night. And he decided to walk through his park to his condo. And it sounds kind of risky, but actually it's a very well lit place. It's not a, it's not any place that had had any crime. He just didn't know that he had been followed that night. He'd been followed by two guys that were just kind of on the, on the tube looking for an opportunity. And they saw this kid and they just followed him off the tube followed him into the park, and they they attacked him, held him up against a tree at, at knife point. They asked for his watch, his wallet, all of his, uh, you know, he had, he had uh, you know, some jewelry, you know, rings and stuff like that, and he gave them everything. He gave them the briefcase. He did everything. He went, you know, back and forth, said, fine, fine, here you go. Here's the wallet. Here's this. And they left. And everybody loves that part of the story. And, you know, because it's exactly what the police tell you to do, exactly what everybody says, don't resist, you know. The second time they came back as he was walking away, they came back hmm. this time. The knives were drawn. Their heads were down. They said nothing and they rushed him and stabbed him 47 times. Oh my God. And for my clients, my goal is always to be able to, for them to be able to delineate the differentiation between those two situations. Like what should he have done as soon as they left and before they came back? Should he, he should have just ran as fast as he could. Yeah, he should have done that. And people don't do that. And it, it, they don't, they, they think it's a transaction. They treat it like it was a business transaction. Everything's fine. Um, the problem was in this first situation, he was able to use his social skills because they engaged him in an antisocial aggressive situation, meaning, you know, they were talking to him, asking him, they weren't in action. The second time there was no communication whatsoever. They were coming in and they were just there to do violence. And unfortunately, the only thing that would have saved his life at that point was for him to respond in kind. And he didn't know that. And as he was being stabbed, people, you know, because people could hear this and, and the reports were he was yelling. He goes, I gave you everything. I gave you everything. They literally had walked away. And one of the guys looked at the other one and said, ah, you know, he saw us. Probably not a good idea to keep him alive. And I mean, they put that much thought into it mm-hmm. as, as they went back and killed this kid. Um and so that's, that's, you know, really kind of the definition of the idea of, you know, when you would ever use it. It's a very rare so, event. So what, what, should, so, so a, the first thing he should have done was immediately run as fast as he could to a place where it was a little more populated. And B, once they start, once they were kind of within three feet of him again, what could he have done then? Well, at that point he would have to, he would have to have something. He would have to know how to, he would have to have trained. He would have to understand, you know, how to put injury into the human body. If someone had trained, what would they have done there? Well, it, I would hope, I would hope that if it was anybody that had been trained by me, they wouldn't have been walking through the park. They wouldn't have done a, a couple of those things. You know, my whole, my whole thing with this is minimizing, go, go down the lit road. You know, just sit there. Okay, yeah, it's going to take an extra 10 minutes for you to do it. But you know what? The risk factor is just there. 
But okay, so in this case though, when they were three feet from him, he's he's already made the mistake, and they yeah. already robbed him. But he and he did all the right things, and he didn't run where which he should have. Uh, they're three feet from him. You trained the. Let's say you trained him. What would he do? He would have to. He would have to. You know, whatever whatever injury potential was closest to him, whatever the profile was, he would have to start putting injury on these guys. The human the, to the human body. He would have to have done something to them. People are going to say, but he has a knife. And say, there are many people that have survived somebody coming at them with a weapon. A weapon does not give you any protection. Meaning, if I'm holding a knife and I'm driving my car at 50 miles an hour into a pylon, that you know that knife holding the knife is not going to stop me from having all of the problems that I'm going to have when I crash into a pylon at 50 miles an hour. You know, there, there's no protection. The knife only works if they're able to use that. And so if I can put injury in the human body at that point, and again, take that brain out of the equation, that's, that's how you start the process. And you take that person to non-functional. Like what should, he, what should he have done to inflict injury? Well, I, I don't know the particular profile he was facing. I don't know what was available to him. Meaning I don't know how these guys came at him. Let, let's um, just say um, he, uh, let's say he, he, they were coming at him from behind, but he became aware of it when they were about three feet from him. I know I'm throwing. I know I'm throwing you right in this situation. No, no, and, and that's okay. And the problem is, I could give a uh, you know what 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 we're talking about is the idea. We want to have you know we want to have this this idea that there's a set response to that situation. Yeah, like a and, Jason Bourne response. But but the Jason Bourne response, those true guys. I mean, I've trained those guys, and and that's not the first one that you understand is those things are random. Right. You know, that those are those are random situations. So you have to train randomly. And what I mean by that is when I train somebody, I pick an area of the human body and I give them various sight pictures. So if we're learning like lateral side of the neck, you know, striking the lateral side of the neck, you have uh, you have two uh, you have an artery, you have a vein and you have two nerves. And when you strike that that with enough uh, you know, force behind that, you'll either get a concussion or you'll get a fainting response where the person just you know drops. Um, you know, when I train that though, I give you all different profiles because I have no idea what profile you're going to see. I'll show it on the ground. I'll show somebody lying on the ground. I'll show somebody on all fours. I'll show them standing up from the front from behind. So what I give you is I give you this ability that from no matter what position you find yourself in, your first job is to get to an injury. And hopefully if I've done my job right, there's been sight pictures provided with that gives you an option. You know, recently I've had two people in the last uh, six months, unfortunately, have to use this information. Both of them only went through like the weekend training and both of them responded because they recognized that it was an asocial situation. Um, one was a dentist. He had walked. He walked in on a Sunday to do some paperwork and there was a, a, a meth freak just going into his pharmacy when he had walked in, he basically walked past his exit. This guy charged him. He realized there was nothing he could do. He charged the guy. He recognized, oh, my God, this is asocial. I have to get into this guy right away. Charged him right away. He ended up hitting him to that, that side of the neck that I told you about. Grabbed the guy's head. This guy was much bigger than the, than the doctor. And he started ramming his head into the side of the uh, door jam, basically. And the guy dropped when he was about to stomp on him, he was going to stomp on his throat because the guy had a knife. He realized the guy's out cold, literally out cold complete. He realized the guy is non-functional. He's no longer a threat. He was able to call the cops. Cops got there quick. They came in and they looked at him. And they said, when they, they ran the guy's rap sheet, they go, you would have been absolutely justified in killing this guy. 
He said he's, you know, he, he's a bad guy. And, and the fact that this guy understood that there was no communication there, this guy was there merely to do violence. He had no problem. He wanted these drugs and he was going to get the drugs. And we didn't teach him, you know, take the head and ram it into the door jam. He just understood that, hey, that would be a good option. You know, that is a hard surface and I have control of his head right now and I should just continue this um, until the guy's non-functional. Let, let me ask you a basic question. Like a lot of times I kind of see almost like the – I don't know if this is a cliche or not. But the idea is uh, poke, your, poke your fingers right in their eyes and that stops them. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the big thing in, in – uh, this is the other thing. The cliche in – in self-protection, self-defense, especially, you know, when they're doing self-defense course, they'll say eyes, groin, and throat. And uh, they'll say, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that's the, and it's me, it's just like, yes, those are all valuable, you know, viable targets. Um, uh, there are three areas of the human body that you don't actually have to require putting a body weight shot into it. I mean, you don't have to have your whole body behind the shot. You can actually crush testicles, you can crush a throat, and you can crush eyes with just your hands. And so that's another reason people talk about those. But here's the problem. The reason we like to say that is like, great, that's all I have to remember. You know, and I had a, cl a client, he's going in, it's a rainy day, he's putting his, uh, he's putting his, uh, his groceries into his Lexus, Guy comes up, all of a sudden there's a 45 right at his head. Hmm. And the guy's there to carjack him. And he looks up, he kind of looks in his peripheral, and guess what is protected from the door? The eyes, the throat, and the groin. Hmm. So those options are gone. But what does he see? He sees the top of the guy's foot underneath the door. And he recognizes the position that the gun's in, and he immediately just drops down, drops his knee on the top of the foot, breaks the bones of the feet, with that, grabs, you know, which, which immediately gets a huge reaction out of the guy when his foot breaks. Um, he, he drops down. He then pulls the heel out, uses the bottom of the car door, and lifts up and breaks the guy's knee. And the guy passes out from the trauma at that oh point. Cops come and get him. But if this guy had only been trained in eyes, groin, and throat, it would just be ridiculous. Uh, you, you don't. We don't do anything that way. If you if you get a mastery of any subject, you don't limit yourself, you know. And, and we don't really learn well that way, you know. You you learn in a much more random uh, environment. I, I guess what I tell people is the majority of people that teach self defense like to teach multiplication, one equation at a time. So they'll give you you know twenty seven times six or thirty seven times five or twenty seven times 38. And you feel really good about that. You know, you go, I memorized those. Those are great. And then all of a sudden, when it comes at you, the problem that comes at you is nine times 57. And you don't, you've never trained that. You don't know what the answer is to that because you don't know how to multiply. You know, I, and, I think the same thing kind of holds, I mean, obviously in a less violent way, but the same thing kind of holds in sort of either entrepreneurship or relationships. Like, like life in general throws random you know, uh, ammunition at you and you always have to figure out, you have to kind of have like base guidelines. How am I going to deal in general with, with life's difficult situations, but then the situations themselves are more random. Yeah. And, and that's, that's the high, the idea. And what's funny is people get very uncomfortable. Like when my clients start training, we basically give them all these science, you know, when they do the physical aspect of it, we start people out and we give them all these sight pictures of the human body a lot often just like you would do like firearms training 
And then when they start to do their own um, their, their own work, when I give them the option, it's called free practice. It's literally that. They're immediately making their own decisions. They're not doing set movement. They're deciding, okay, from this profile, this is where I'd go first. I put my first injury here. And I, I just give them this graduated approach that they get used to from the get-go making their own decisions in a very random environment because that's what they're going to be facing. And it's a, a progression that you take people through. You know, there, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of data behind the idea of deep practice, and we've been doing that for quite some time. Where I sink everything in to people first at a very slow rate before I would ever, you know, quote unquote, pressure test them or give them any you know any kind of a challenge. I want them to make sure that in a low stress environment. They learn as much as possible how their own human machine works, how they can take one square inch of their human body, put it on a vulnerable square inch of another human, and get a result. And once I get them past that stage, I then can stair-step them into the more dynamic aspects of it. And it's just amazing to me how when it comes to you know, self-defense and uh, the approach, it's, it's done in such an opposite way. I mean, those skill sets are usually put in a sparring situation or a very extreme situation before the client has any usable skills that they've locked in. And to me, it's just like anything else. It's, it's, it would be like, it would be almost like throwing you into your business on the first day. You haven't had any, any idea of how to market your business. Um, I'll give you a hundred thousand dollars and go. You know, but, but I guess though you start out like you specifically seem to start out with some generalities. Like, is it social aggression or is it a social uh, of violence? Yeah. Um, and you know, so you have some generalities and and like a decision tree, but then the leaves of the decision tree are random. Yeah, well, here, here's the deal: the the only time that you would be justified in using the information to physically protect yourself is in a, a something you're devoid of choice. And so, what I tell people all the time is, a lot of times, a lot of good information, the best information on doing violence to other humans, comes from the worst parts of society, and, and that's a very hard thing for us to wrap our heads around. I get people to watch acts of violence, and you know, so it takes all the fantasy away. I go, okay. You think this is how people use knives and, you know, you see these knife fighters showing these elaborate little dances and, and, you know, movements and stuff. And I said, okay, here's three prison murders. And these guys have to make this happen because it's taken them six months to set up this murder. They have to make sure that this guy is dead before the SWAT team gets there. Let's watch how they do it. And it's, it's, it's jarring to people when they see what real violence looks like. And the fact that real violence, the best people, the other thing that jars people is the best people in the world at doing violence to other human beings have zero training in combat sports and martial arts. Hmm. They, they all reside in the prison, in, in the prison uh, system. And I don't glorify these people, but there's a lot of good information. I mean, the new book I'm working on, I'm, inter- I'm, I'm interviewing top people from these gangs and how they view violence. And when you, when you compare that, to the industry, and when you compare that even to the military and law enforcement approach to it, there is such an indirect path that you see in the industry and also in military and law enforcement, and yet when you get to these guys, you see a very clear, direct path on how to use the tool, and it's jarring, but if it's your life on the line, that's the information I want to give you, So I don't, I, you know, and that's, that's, that's how we look at it. So have you ever had to use, like in a, in a life or death situation, have you ever had to use any of these techniques? Oh, yeah. I mean, and I did a lot of things that, uh, you know, I, in my younger years when I when I did this, when I was in my 20s, uh, you know, I was at the, you know, I was the height of my 
uh, my training. I mean, I was in this elite group. I was doing all this really cool stuff. And, um, yeah, you know, people ask me all the time, does it work good in a bar fight? It works great in a bar fight. It works fantastic in a bar fight. The problem is, can you justify it? You know, can you justify it to the judge? Hey, judge, he, uh, he took my bar stool. So I slammed his head on the bar. I threw him down. Hey, I'm really sorry that his head hit the concrete and he has a brain bleed. But, you know, he tried to take my bar stool. Whereas if I said the same thing, you know, and you laugh at that, you just kind of chuckled at that because it's ridiculous. <laughs> it's absolutely ridiculous, right? So you know, here's the other scenario. He, he came in through the back door of the bar. He shot three people. His gun jammed. As his gun jammed, he was trying to unload it. I was able to run over there. And I hit him. I slammed his head in the bar three times, threw him down and bounced his head off the concrete, and he didn't shoot anybody else. That's much all, better. All, yeah, but all of a sudden, everybody – now you go from, oh, wait, wait, what did you do? How did you do that? How, you know, because the context yeah. was there. And the problem is a lot of this stuff is shown in the absolute wrong context. It's shown in bar fights and stuff. And when I've had to use it, I'll, uh, I think it would be more enlightening for you to hear how – the last time I ever used it. The last time I ever used it in a, a, a choice situation was I had just got back from South America. I was in my late 20s. Uh, I was full of myself with my buddies. I'm driving in a part of San Diego um, where there was a lot of traffic. It was the Midway Rosecrans area of San Diego. We were, we were, we were getting we we're going to head towards a beach bar. I'm with three of my buddies in my Jeep and people are literally inching. They're inching ahead of each other um, on there. So it's, it's that kind of traffic. There's a guy that I can see in my rearview mirror who literally thinks that I cut him off in this inching process and he's fuming. He's absolutely fuming. And my buddies and I catch it out of the rearview mirror and I'm just laughing. I'm going, look at this idiot. He's, he's, you know, look how he's fuming. You see the steam coming out of his ears and I'm, I care less. I just been in South America. I'm in San Diego. What do I care? You know, so I start, you know, egging this guy on. I start like, you know, getting his, getting eye contact with him. I start blowing kisses out of him. I'm laughing with my buddies. Well, this guy proceeds to be able to inch around me on the thing, get, is able to get in front of me. And this takes probably about 10 minutes for it to happen. And he stops his car. And I laugh. I, I sit there and laugh and, and I go, Oh, this is great. And he's getting out of his car and I get out of my car and I, I go to, you know, I go to go after him. I see him getting out of his car. I hear my buddy in the back yell, gun. And I'm like, at that point, I realized I'm completely exposed. I have, you know, the, my only chance is I have to run this guy down if I'm going to survive. And then I look and I see it's not a gun. What it is, is it's one of those. Remember back then, uh, a lot of people used those uh, steering wheel bars that would lock on the steering wheel, yeah. a big bar. Okay, that's what it was. That's what he had in his hand. And I looked back at my buddy, and I just, I just, I, I said a couple of expletives to him because he scared the hell out of me. This was not a threat to me. I wasn't worried. I trained this stuff all the time. So the guy has a club, a big deal. I charge him, and I charge him. Now I'm really mad because I thought I was about to die with with a gun, you know, because I didn't have the distance. And now I'm, and now I'm just pissed. So I run towards the guy. And he comes in, it's perfect, man. He tries to swing like an idiot. I slam him on his arm, right on his radial nerve. I get him by the neck. I throw him on the back of his car. I slam him right in the back of his car, his back windshield, just about to pound the crap out of him. And that's when I saw the three-year-old daughter in the back of the car oh, with her God. face, her face pressed up against the glass saying, please, please, please don't hurt daddy. She's crying. I, to this day, that is etched in my brain. 
And that is the last time I ever used it when I had a choice, meaning I chose to get involved in that. I ate that on. I made that happen. And I survived. It wasn't something that, you know, I, if the guy had a gun, he probably would have shot me a couple of times because I don't think I could have cleared the distance. So, so know? how did you then get up off of him without, like, attacking you or by the uh, uh, No, he was done. Oh, he yeah. was absolutely – he was scared to death. You know, he was – he had no idea. You know, you got to understand when people <laughs> – if people brandish a weapon at you and you charge them, they 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 can't believe that. You know they don't. They, this guy had no idea. They didn't realize that. I'd seen that profile thousands of times. It wasn't a big deal. And I don't mean that in a in a you know. And this is my twenty you know twenty eight year old self talking to you right now. And to me, that was oh, that's no big deal. And so I was ready for it. Uh, what I wasn't ready for was I wasn't ready for the daughter. And I couldn't believe. I looked at the guy. I go. I go. You have to be effing kidding me. You have a kid, and you're doing this. And the guy just goes, uh, you know, get in your car. I just got him in his car. I took the, I took the club. I threw it in the back and, you know, people all around were watching and everything, but there were no police or anything like that. And so everybody just kind of went off oh, and, man. you know, and it really caused me that, that, that was the, that was the last time I ever looked at this as I said, boy, I took a real risk at that, that stage of the game. And what an idiot, you know, here I was, I didn't, I, you know, the interesting thing with James was I never operated like that in South America. South America, I never would have because I took that as real. You know, I was like, okay, I'm operating. I'm down here. I have to, you know, I have to be smart about things. Whereas I'm back home and I had this idea that, oh, everything's fine here and I can just be an idiot. And, uh, you know, and, and I share that with people, you know, when they ask about this, they go, oh, yeah, hey, works great, you know, but, but here's the downside of it. You know, I literally flipped a coin and it worked out okay for me that time. Um, but I don't flip coins if I don't have to anymore. Well, that's that's super smart, and I, I like how you um, you know look at all you know possible situations and not just violence in your training. That seems incredibly important uh, skill for people to have, uh, as opposed to just you know kicking them in the groin or whatever. Um, yeah, yeah, that's that's the I, that's the pro- the problem with this is the reason we, I, I like to look at the subject of violence for people is it is prevalent throughout all human history. Um, and there's no greater fear in, in, in with humans than to have, be physically dominated against your will by another human. Uh, and, you've scared the hell out of me already today. So, well, that's not that's not the goal. Meaning, meaning, what's so funny is is this is very inform- You know, this is great information. And, and the one thing you know, I'd love to leave people with is the idea that if if we as a human species had to be bigger, faster, and stronger, we wouldn't we wouldn't be here. What makes us uh, who we are is our brain, our ability to think and move. And, and it's using that and our ability to use tools that ha, ha, has allowed us to, to, to go. The problem is we forget that we do live in this physical world and that, you know, we should have something in our toolbox. I am not saying this is a lifestyle choice. I'm not saying you have to do it to the level that I've, I've done it, but you should absolutely have some awareness. You know, 50 years ago, you know, you would have had some sort of, you know, physical training in, in this, you know, it was, it was there hundred years ago. Anybody with real, uh, anybody with real, uh, you know, assets or anything like that would, uh, would have to have, um, would have to have absolutely known how to protect themselves first. They wouldn't have relied on real responders. It was one of those things. It's only in these last 50 years that we've kind of abdicated this and we we don't take any real personal responsibility in our own self-protection. And I I don't mean that in an extremist sense. I mean, we literally, our plan is if anything happens, we just hope there's a first responder. 
And unfortunately, that's just not the case. And so looking at the subject, A, doesn't make you one of them. It doesn't make you a, a, a uh, criminal. But looking at the subject will inoculate you from a lot of the unnecessary fears. It's really not a hard subject to get your head around. And it's not a hard subject for you to come up with a plan that really allows you to live a far more peaceful life. And, and that's really what people get. You know, when they, when they have an experience where they train with us, their takeaway is, geez, I, I don't have these unnecessary worries anymore. I recognize what can be a potential threat and what's not. And in, until I have a, a problem, I'm going to live this great life. And that's that's really my big goal with people. And and uh, again, it's really impressive how you you a turned that into a business. B how again when I think of self defense, I think of fighting. But you're really talking about what you call self protection, which maybe only a small percentage of that actually involves fighting. You know, a lot of it yeah. is just how to <clears throat> avoid the fighting. I, I think the I think the issue is there's a lot of people out there. You know, you know the uh, the tagline that I'm known for is um, violence is rarely the answer, and everybody loves that portion of it. And we love to talk about when the absolute wrong time is to use violence. You know, the idiot, the bar, all of those situations where people are aggressive. It's the second part of the situation that really rounds out the training, though. It says, you know, but when it is. It's the only answer. And that's the other half of the training that I think most people don't have. And when you introduce that to them, you know, you can hear things like, hey, don't go to the ATM, at, you know, after 830 at night. It just precipitously, you know, it, it just it's just a much huge risk. You, you hear that. So then I show you three videos, closed circuit TV videos of people going to the ATMs. 1030 at night, you know, 11 o'clock at night, older people too, just regular people going and getting brutally attacked, not in bad neighborhoods, you know, and you just sit there and they go, oh my God, you know, they never have really seen that. And then when I show them on top of that, I go, okay, now you look at that situation in order to survive a situation like this, here's the kind of information you have to have. Here's the kind of destruction you have to do to protect yourself. That causes the behavioral changes. If I just tell you, hey, don't do this, don't do that, you'll go, yeah, 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 I know that. But you know what? It's convenient. It's not really that much of a risk. I'm not going to do it. After you go through a situation where I show you, okay, here's real footage, and this is what really happens. And, oh, by the way, I'm going to take you through the physical training so you're going to know exactly what it takes, what you're going to have to do to survive something like this. I can't tell you the responses that I get from people where they, it's, it's a systemic change in the way they live their lives. Wow. Well, uh, Tim, I, I, this is like my longest podcast ever, but I'm really <laughs> grateful that you've spent the time. Like, it's incredibly valuable. I hope, I hope people look, I'm going to take your course. When do you, uh, when do you teach a course in New York City? I'll be back in New York. Uh, I'm putting out my, uh, my, my uh, schedule for two fifty for 2015 real soon. I'll make sure you know when, when I'm out there. Okay, good. And, and if people want to find you, they can go to uh, targetfocustraining.com or they can search on your name, which is what I did, Tim Larkin, L-A-R-K-I-N. And yep. you've also written um, a couple of books, uh, How to Survive the Most Critical Five Seconds of Your Life. And then there's the book that uh, Tony Robbins wrote the intro to, which is um, Survive the Unthinkable, A Total Guide to Women's Self-Protection. Uh, again, Tim, I really appreciate uh, all the information and, and the time you've spent here. I know you're you're super busy, so so thanks a lot. Well, I appreciate it, James. Thanks for the opportunity. Okay, thanks, Tim. I'll talk to you soon. Bye. Thanks, man. Bye, bye. 
For more from James, check out the James Altucher Show on the Stansberry Radio Network at stansberryradio.com and get yourself on the free insiders list today. At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate, pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu.